0: Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. In this episode, we're talking about phosphorus and potassium guidelines. We have two members of our nutrient management team and two out-of-state guests. Can you each give us a quick introduction? So this is
1: Daniel Kaiser. I'm a nutrient management specialist with the University of Minnesota Extension. I'm located out of the St. Paul campus. My area of specialization is in um, fertilizer guidelines, uh, particularly uh, corn, soybean and the majority of our agronomic crops across the state.
2: Hi, I'm Jeff Vetch. I'm a researcher for uh, at the Southern Research and Outreach Center here in Waseca. Uh, my area of emphasis is actually nitrogen management, but I work uh, uh, considerably with Dan on long-term P&K projects across the southern part of the state.
3: I am Antonio Monarino. I am a soil fertility and nutrient management specialist at Iowa State.
4: I'm Dorival Ruiz Diaz, soil fertility specialist extension at Kansas State University. Um, primarily work with corn, soybeans, uh, and obviously winter wheat also, which is a main crop for us here in, in Kansas.
0: Why do P&K guidelines differ from state to state?
1: So that's a really good question, Paul. Um, You know, you look at a lot of our numbers. um, So we should kind of go back to the guidelines ourselves. If you look at the majority of the states around us, everything undergoes what we call correlation and calibration. So essentially the correlation step, we're correlating crop response to a specific soil test method. um, That's one of the things that's important when you're looking at soil testing for both P and K is that the numbers aren't universal across the different methods. So um, we have to go to the step of going through and and doing that correlation step, then calibrating the soil test, essentially to make it useful for fertilizer applications or how much we should apply based on a given level. So when you look at that, um, a lot of work goes into that. And a lot of the differences across state really come to the philosophies of the researchers that are doing the work themselves. And if you look at that in the past, I mean, we have two main philosophies that are generally used for P and K. One's what we call the sufficiency approach, which essentially is only applying the amount of fertilizer that's needed to maximize Economic yield, which tends to be less as we increase our soil test. So we generally, with a sufficiency approach, we're accounting for more of what the soil's supplying within um, within a given year to try to minimize the amount of fertilizer we need. Now, one of the drawbacks of the approach is that we generally need more rigorous soil testing to make sure that we're getting into those areas where we're we're seeing drops because we're more likely, since we're looking at not uh, not a removal rate, to see some drops in soil test over time. The majority of the growers we see, particularly in Minnesota, you get to the southern part of the state, um, will practice something that we call a build and maintain. So essentially, we're building to a certain soil test level, which is generally around a critical level, which the interesting thing, if you look across state lines, is that we see a lot of agreement in what those critical levels are for given soil tests. So if you look at some of that underlying information, there isn't a whole lot of difference between critical levels, um, some of the probability of response data that we have for given soil test ranges that a lot of that underlying information is there. And generally what growers are going to do then with a the build and maintain, they're going to just essentially apply a maintenance rate around a given soil test level. And you know, that's, you know, I came out of Iowa. I mean, Antonio, you could answer that as much as you generally your optimum class. It's generally what I've always thought identifying as that's kind of what you def- define as optimal for maintenance. I mean, the issue with the build and maintain though, is the fact that you get it to a certain point. If you're maintaining that you get to a, a situation where you're at a lower probability that that fertilizer is going to give you a yield response. So that's one of the things really about it is if you look at it, um, you know, in kind of discussions with some of my colleagues around, if you look at a lot of our numbers, the underlying numbers are the same. Um, but it's just essentially that interpretation of the philosophy that's been kind of ingrained. So in Minnesota with the sufficiency, that's more of a Western philosophy. So that's kind of where some of our researchers came from at one point in time. So we see that kind of where our recommendations are. I've been trying to more moderate towards looking at what we call a hybrid approach where we kind of utilize both of them to try to get the best out of both of them with uh, and try to help growers at least give them the information they need to make their own decisions because that's essentially what a lot of them are doing they're working with their retailers and trying to make the best decision for them what they can in, in their given circumstances
2: you know when we think about phosphorus uh, availability um, some of the differences lie in the in the extracts that we use when we get in the western part of the corn belt uh the Dakotas and western northwestern Minnesota we have the the Olsen test which fits better than the more universal Malik three tests that you see in the in the Eastern Corn Belt. And that makes sense because it's just it's it works better on those soils, on those high pH soils. Um and when you think about and actually sit down and look at the at the recommendations, as Dan said, there are a lot of similarities. And when you look at Minnesota, North Dakota and South Dakota, those P and K guidelines are very, very similar.
1: And that's one of the things that, you know, I've kind of looked at, you know, and I mean, Antonio can address this a little bit more is, um, you know, we see more pressure, particularly from NRCS with some of the universal extractants like the malic 3 coming in. And I mean, I think Antonio, you're probably the closest state that had to me that has recommendations for the malic 3 that is both ICP and colorimetric. And that's one of the, the challenges with that test is that, You know, the test itself should extract the same amount, but how you read that test varies. So it's one of the the things that when you're getting data back, you just have to be careful in terms of your interpretation because they're not always the same.
3: Yes, precisely. Uh, Yeah, I have been working for years on this issue. And the the main uh, main, uh, thing is that it doesn't matter what soil test you use. Extractant. If you use the traditional colorimetric determination of the extracted phosphorus, uh, you get a number. But if you use the ICP to measure in the same extract, then you get a higher number because there are the colorimetric method measures only orthophosphate, but the ICP also measures some other uh, phosphorus form that are dissolved. So there the only reason that um, and this happened for soil extracts, runoff extracts, tile drainers tracks, everything, for every test. The only reason that uh, this is singled out for the melic 3 and that's how we have interpretation for both in, in Iowa, for the melic 3 colorimetric and the melic 3 icp is that about 15 years ago, uh, you see the ICP was a very expensive machine in the labs, but about 15, 18 years ago, it became cheaper. And uh, many labs uh, began abandoning the classic colorimetric determination for this uh, ICP determination. And, but at the same time, because the melic 3 supposedly is a universal test, can be used for measure P, potassium, and in some conditions, cations, and even micronutrients, you know. um, Then labs began switching to it, and I believe now most labs in the region, uh, many labs in the region, use actually the MEDIC-3. And this is another problem we have, you know, that some labs uh, use the MEDIC-3-ACP, but ex- express the results as a colorimetric. Uh, I know there are a couple of labs that use the MEDIC-3-ACP, and they express the results as gray with some internal correlation. With this, you know, we have so many things confusing in soil testing, you know, but this is something that confuses things unnecessarily, you know. Uh, so m- many labs don't even say in the reports what method they're using. They may say Olsen, they may say Medic3, but they may not say what, what is their use. Now, this is something that we have been uh, uh, working on for many years, you know, with the uh, NAPT and so forth, you know, the proficiency testing programs. So it is confused, but um, just in terms of the um, recommendations, I, I agree with what uh, Dan said, you know, and, and Jeff too, you know, most of our systems in the north central region are kind of like a hybrid uh, between the classic or strict sufficiency level and the build up and maintenance. There are some differences, you know, for example, in Iowa, traditionally, we have decided that we will not use Uh, yield and removal for the low testing classes you see so we our recommendations are to maximize yield Uh, it doesn't matter the yield level so that's not used for maintenance of what we call the optimum that we define as um, a range with a low probability of response then uh, recommend applying removal base and this these things are a bit different in different states the main issue is that (laughs) in spite of uh, Many of us being friends, you know, and uh, work together. I have been working 30 years here in Iowa, and uh, we have not been able to come up with similar recommendations for for example, bordering soil series, you know, that the numbers are about the same. Now, there are several reasons for that. The philosophy of each of us, as Dan said. Also, that we are pushed by our stakeholders to have our data. Okay, so we need to have our data. We are in Iowa. We are not in Minnesota, so we want the recommendations, you know, for, for Iowa or for Minnesota. And it is difficult. You see, it is difficult because uh, Iowa is relatively easy. We have about the same mixture of soils all over the state. But for example, when we go to to Minnesota, you know, it's huge. Southern Minnesota may be similar to Iowa, but western Minnesota and central northern Minnesota is not. So then, for some states, it's it's difficult, you know, to say okay. Yeah, let's get together and let's have similar suggestion, recommendations for neighboring soil series. Eh, it's difficult. We are trying. Uh, there have been efforts, for example, in the, the tri-state area, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, they have some common things. Uh, and I believe that Minnesota, South Dakota, and Oragota used to have what it was called also some kind of tri-state stuff. We've done, you know, we have been uh, started talking uh this summer you know trying to see if we can come up to some uh, at least uniform concepts but but as dan said you know uh overall we are in general agreement there are no major discrepancies you know between our recommendations
4: Paul well, i think this is a great question what why uh, recommendations change uh, in different states and i completely agree with with Dan uh, uh part of this is philosophy um in the case of of cancers we do have uh, Clearly, hybrid system really a sufficiency option, and we also offer a build and maintain option for for producers. And there are many reasons for that. Obviously, the the data and, and the research, uh, like uh, other colleagues mentioned already, is is very similar. However, we do have some things that are different for different regions. Uh, for example, in our case, um, for example, we do have quite a bit of winter wheat in the rotation, right? which is a crop that has a different response uh, typically. And so the cropping system play a role there, right? So that, that's one factor. Um, for example, Jeff mentioned already uh, situations of high pH, which uh, is very common for us in Kansas as well. We, we do have a gradient of, of pH uh, from uh, acidic soils in the East to a uh, very high pH in the West. And, and again, that also creates a, a challenge in terms of what soil methods we use and, and what works better for us compared to other states. Uh, and so those are key things that uh, happens. One thing also that, um, and this goes to the philosophy, for us something that is a challenge is that especially central and western Kansas, we do have drought, okay? And so this is oftentimes the most limiting factor for many producers. And so oftentimes, the, the, and again, this goes really more on the philosophy. Many producers say, okay, i rather have everything that I can control at the optimum, or above optimum, obviously including fertility, then be ready when we have the moisture uh, to maximize yields. And so again, this is, this is, these are some things that are very unique to different regions and maybe goes beyond what we have in terms of data, which again could be very similar across different states.
3: You know, this, this is a great point that, that Dorivar just made because I, I, I have like a, almost an extension program in South America, you know, and I grew up and worked there. Uh, this issue of the concept of uh, maintenance, you know. If you go to some countries of the world, uh, you suggest that they may say, who is this guy, might be coming from Pluto. This is ridiculous because what happened is that in, in the North Central region, the Great Plains, most of our soils have uh, not much, what we call fixation, quote, you know. So the issue build up, draw down, you know, and maintain, makes sense but you go to some uh, extremely calcareous soils uh, maybe not even the ones we have in Iowa Minnesota but yeah. Yeah, I mean you go to the 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 the, the mountain states you know that you may have 40 50 60% <laughs> calcareous and uh, and you go to some volcanic soils you know basaltic soils or some soils in the southeast where we have exchangeable aluminum you know that you talk about uh this concept of maintenance, it doesn't make sense. So in in our cases, we can do that, because especially for farmers that have safe land tenure, uh, at least two, three, four, five years ahead, applying a bit uh, too much, say one year or two, uh, it's not a big deal, you know, that phosphorus or potassium will be there, will be available in the future, so we can count on that. And it's like a bank. Now, it's a Kind of bank that charges the farmer interest, as I say, you know, because you have runoff, you know. For example, you have losses; uh, there may be in some situation a little bit of retention. So, but so uh, the, we are lucky in the North Central region that we can have this uh, this concept, you know, that provide flexibility, you know, for for the farmer. So, depending on the philosophy of the farmer uh, or the consultant, then you can go one way or another. This this is to me one other issue. Of course, we could talk hours. Is that um, really we need to be careful because we can recommend, we can suggest, but there is not one best solution for the fertility things. There are many. You see, I remember when we the i started with the four hour concept. I said there is no four hours. There are a million four hours. You know, so so especially in our region and for PK management, the the what is that our suggestions assume, you see, Uh, because many things that we recommend, uh, we are assuming what the stakeholder has in his mind, and we cannot go too far with that. So that's why I think we need to provide data, information, explain what are our assumptions when we make the recommendations, but then let people, you know, decide and then consider land tenure, consider uh their uh, attitude towards risk for example some farmers uh they prefer to apply a little bit less so they are sure that they have a high return to the investment on those pounds of fertilizer that they apply i may be okay and they don't care too much about getting maximum yield but most farmers says they tell me antonio yield pay the bills you know so then some others say no i prefer to have a little bit more i'm okay i'm not gonna go broke So I prefer to be optimal a bit high, you know, so then all the other things that we have to spend on very expensive hybrids land, you know, combines pickup trucks, all that stuff, you know, then they they produce. So so it's really important that uh, when we talk and and we all have been trying to do it for many years is to explain our philosophies and, and 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 explain to consultants and farmers that there has to be a. Uh, a good discussion, especially between consultants, you know, and and cops, you know, and and agribusiness and the farmers in terms of what is the farmer philosophy about input management? This is something that uh, is complicated, and that's why I believe the flexibility in the suggestion and recommendations is important.
4: I think that's a great point, Antonio, uh, talk about Dollars and cash flow and all of that. And obviously, with the fertilizer prices we have today, this has been a big issue. Uh, One situation we saw a lot in Kansas this past year is that those producers who were maintaining soil tests at optimum level, they were able to cut back on rates without penalizing yields so much. Obviously, that's a challenge in a sufficiency system where you essentially still have to apply fertilizer. Uh, Otherwise, uh, uh, we are losing money. And so that's exactly uh, an excellent point. I think we have to keep in mind that the producer will also have different philosophy based on what worked for them, land tenure, uh, cash flow, and so on. And and I think we really saw that issue with the high fertilizer prices.
3: The problem, you know, what it is, is that all of us need to deal with our epa's or Department of Natural Resources and our state nrcs and of course uh, this uh, the technical personnel of those agencies they want to do a good job you know and many of them adopt or adopt our suggestion or recommendations of course uh, they include some of them in regulations you know and this is something that complicates our lives too because when we provide all this flexibility which i believe we should they may not be able to. So then uh, if we are too flexible in our association recommendation, they come to us and say, I mean, come on, Antonio, essentially what you're saying is that farmers can do whatever they want. Well, uh, so this is something that also we need to do a great job with our partners, you know, state and uh, federal agencies, you know, so they understand that we are here to make suggestions to provide guidance. Uh, it's not the role of a uh, land-grant universities to establish uh, regulations or recommendations. So when they adapt or require from us, you know, information, they need to understand, and farmers need to understand too. See that uh, uh, often, what uh, those agencies say may not be exactly what we are saying out there, but that's. That's understandable. So this is another thing why sometimes we focus in our state borders for our research, you know, because of the demands, not just to the farmers, but also the state agencies in terms of what we have. Now, you guys have mentioned wheat. Of course, there's no wheat in Iowa. It's, it's a wheat, you know, and uh, essentially corn and soybean and alfalfa and pastures. So so for the, we do have some recommendations, you know, suggestion for P and K for wheat, you know, and and, and some flour things like that. So we cannot possibly do the research to support those suggestions. So what we do, we actually check with our neighbors, you know, and, and we do like a, a, a mix of recommendations, you know, to, to from, from Missouri, from Nebraska, from, from Minnesota, Wisconsin. And then so we provide that, you know, but uh, we don't have the research to support those, you know. So, uh, and that's something that uh, maybe some of your states do the same thing, but not everybody has the funding to really work in every single field of a state, you know, and every single crop, you know. So this is where the interstate uh, discussions and collaborations like the one we're doing today uh, it's very, very important and useful.
0: In your opinion, what is the best way to collect soil samples? Are there benefits from grid sampling?
3: I get this question a lot, and
1: I kind of think I remember, Antonio, you saying something about essentially when you start looking at intergrid, the variation within fields is about as much variation as you can get within a grid. And I, so I think kind of some of the things that you're saying before, looking at the, um, not, uh, the four R's and saying that there's many four R's is that there's not a one, best strategy across all sites it's really on a site by site basis and that's kind of what i and i'll tell to a lot of our growers and i don't know just kind of iowa what i mean just generally your opinions and stuff for what are generally down there what you generally tell your growers so that's kind of what i'm interested in hearing too is that some of the around the regions uh, if it just kind of if it matches with some of the stuff we've been saying to a lot of our growers here in minnesota
3: well you guys know that i've done lots of work on variable rate and grid sampling I think that since I started work in Iowa 30 years ago the overall ground level in the state went down a couple of inches you know with all the samples that have we have taken here but you know it is exactly what uh, Dan said you know um I am known for being particularly uh, pushing for a well-done grid sampling not just taking four cores around the four wheeler, you know, well done, up with enough cores, um, and use of variable rate. Because I see now what um, Dan said, you know, that in many fields, the variability within those salt uh, souver map units or yield map units, you know, is as high as the variation over the fields. And I think this will become even uh, uh, worse in the future because fields are, fields are getting larger. You see, I remember thirty years ago, uh, there were a few 160 acres fields in Iowa. Now there are many out there. Uh, fences are going out, so I believe that um, the the these tools are are very useful. Uh, the other issue is that uh, when we do this uh, management zone sampling, um, uh, we look at all the layers. You know that may tell us where either the, 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 the nutrient levels or the efficiency of the fertilizer may be different, you know. We may end up with as many samples, composite samples, or zones that if we do grid sampling. And of course, for many farmers and dealers and, and consultants, it's much cheaper uh, to send a guy, you know, with a four-wheeler to get, you know, samples. than uh, many people tell me, Antonio, in order to do a good zone management zone sampling, I need to have a PhD in my office. You know, and uh, so that takes money too. Now, what I tell them, you know, by doing a management sampling and getting all these layers of information, you are learning more about the field, uh, you see. Uh, But, you know, um, now on the other hand, I really believe that uh, farmers have for a long time underestimated the value of soil testing and over estimated the cost, you see. If you look at the cost of soil sampling and testing, now it's about half what it used to be 30 years ago. Uh, Farmers very willingly spend money and new hybrids, and new pickup trucks, and new combines, and some things that most likely are snake oil out there. But when you tell them, hey, do a better soil sampling, do a grid sampling, and sample every two years, not every four years, and see, come on, we are in the 21st century. We cannot keep managing fields for the average. It doesn't make sense. But then they say, oh no, I cannot afford it. See, I, I think that uh, this has to change. You know, we, we, uh, they need to take, it's not that I trust too much soil testing sometimes because I'm very well aware of the pitfalls, you know, that we may discuss that in some other session, but see, we need to get soil samples. We need to do soil samples more often. We need to use these precision act technologies, uh, but uh, of course, if a farmer has an 80-year field that has been working on it, you know, for 50 years, and it's flat as a table, you know, and then maybe it's not worth it. If the farmers are uh, maintaining a high level when they should not, half of the farmers in the North Central region are applying maintenance to high levels that. If they could stop applying fertilizer for 10, 15 years before there is a likely response, there. So why in the world are going to spend in some expensive soil sampling test? See, on the other day we go, guy, son, we go to southern Iowa or maybe some part of Missouri, where all the fields, you know, for a farmer are extremely low. Why they're going to spend money, you know, and then sampling when they should do just put fertilizer? Darn it! You know that's that's the main thing. So so depending on the situation, then I think that uh, that one thing is better. But I believe that we need to start be with management zones, be with the sampling. We need to recognize the internal variability that are in fields, and uh, and farmers should start. Every farmer should have a yield monitor by now. Most co-ops offer the, the the price to just uniform rate, you know, with a floater, you know, and variable rate is about the same. So I believe that we should encourage farmers to use this, this technology.
1: One of the major mistakes I think a lot of growers are making right now too, as you see, and this came up at our meeting with our fertilizer research and education, our AFRIC council is the number that are just strictly going with removal, not even testing any of their fields. And the thing is, with as Dorvar said, with the prices are they're, they're at, um they've got a definite advantage if they want to cut back on costs at some point. If you know where you're at, particularly if you're in a high already, you've banked um you know some phosphorus for a few years there where you could cut back and not worry about it. I mean, the problem is I think there's just this general fear what I get with some growers that when we call this mass balance that uh, inputs in, outputs out that these things you know balance out the way, that if you don't apply one year that your soil test is going to crash and it just doesn't work that way. I mean, it's just when you look at the phosphorus that there, there's a lot of total phosphorus there. And I mean, you look at it, there's an available pool. There's um, you look at then some moderately available pool and some less available pools that I, I'd like to throw fixation out there, Antonio. I know that's your uh, favorite word, but, um, but we know that these pools that they're dynamic and things shift back and forth. So it isn't exactly that I put so many pounds in that I can actually essentially see that those pounds coming out based on the soil test so you know i think the, the thing is just at least having something is a good start to know where you're at i mean obviously it's if your soil tests are in that 50 part per million range it's less uh, across a field it's less um important that you do grid sampling across that field but um you might get to a point at which you hit a low spot but um but i think that's if you look at mistakes right now it's just not knowing it's kind of the big thing and just to, just going and blindly putting in um what you took off the field because we start looking at removal rates um it's one of the things that I need to get a, a news release out at some point just showing this the reality of removal rates that it isn't one number that that crop is removing it's a range in numbers and being precise down to the pound really isn't needed when it comes to phosphorus and, and likely potassium. I mean, potassium is a whole different animal just with how the soil test changes over time. But um, but yeah, knowledge is power in these cases. And if you've got high prices, um, phosphorus is probably the easiest one to cut just because our information is so much better when it comes to the probability of response. I mean, potassium is a mess, but um, phosphorus is one of the easiest ones that um, we can get a better assessment on, on what that availability is going to be within a given year.
4: I completely agree. Uh, I think uh, the key here is that we have to have the right information uh, to make decisions. And, and one thing that I, I often encourage uh, farmers, especially those who are starting to farm new ground, I think they have to do grid sampling to really know what's there. Um, oftentimes it's possible that they may not have to do grid sampling Again, in the future, if the field is uniform and now they have a history of management, but without knowing, is 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 very challenging. So that's a, that's that's one key key point. Um, another aspect, another thing that Dan also mentioned uh, in terms of the removal, and we see this very often here, is that some farmers rely a lot on removal values, but we have to recognize these are average numbers, and there's really a range, and so it's it's not uncommon to see surprises. Uh, uh, after a few years when farmers are managing uh, things that way the other the other key point i wanted to mention also and goes back to the economics is that we're talking about p and k primarily um, but in some cases for us for example we need to apply lime and that's a very expensive input and, and we really need to apply it in the right place we also have the risk of over applying and so to me there's no question it has to be something it has to be variable rate for very expensive inputs like lime and phosphorus To be honest, with the prices today, it's also the same situation.
2: One thing I'd like to add to what Antonio mentioned, and it also aligns with what Dorvar just talked about, is one of the mistakes that I think people do, or too many farmers do, is and maybe this is related to who they hire to do their soil testing, is they send the samples to the lab and they test for way too many things, especially with grid sampling. That might be fine when you first, you know, first time you grid a field, but you don't need to test for CEC and organic matter and all these micronutrients every time. And that adds dramatically to the cost. I mean, if it's a field that you just acquired and you might only have it on a short term rental, just get PHP and K and and probably be confident with that. And hopefully it's gonna cost a lot less. And I think that's a big mistake that people make is they test for the whole suite of everything. It costs $40, $50 per sample, and it's just not necessary.
3: That's, that's a great point, Jeff. Organic matter, for example, why in the world you're gonna be testing organic matter more frequently than, say, every four or six years. This CC, you know, that could be important for some things, but not much for fertility management, you know, especially for P&K, we know that. So now labs have all these packages, you know, but I believe there should be more information, you see. And then farmers, of course, I believe, uh, I don't know who of you mentioned that. I mean, they does, they don't have to do the same thing every time. They can do a very dense grid sampling, well done once, And then they can use that as another layer for the future, to use it as a as a as a for a management zone sampling, you know, things like that. But of course, you know, what happened is that I mean, at least in Iowa, much of the sampling is done by by consultants, you know, or or companies, you know, you know that It's, it's not the farmer. And that's another thing that I believe is important for sampling that we should emphasize, even when 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 farmers want to do soil testing, you know. Not they don't pay much attention to the sample collection, they don't understand you know that there is all these variabilities, all these issues, the sampling depth, especially with chisel, plow tillers, and no till, we have this stratification. So, the people that take the samples most likely are not the same ones from year to year. So, everybody has it biased when they take those samples and get those results, they build a castle, you know, with a recommendation based on that. But they don't pay much attention how the sample is collected and what that means. So uh, the, the, the person that takes the samples is not the one that makes the decision. It's not the one that has to pay the bills. So we need to talk more to the samplers, you know, especially uh, the, the, the professional samplers, you know. They need to pay attention to that. Everybody's in a hurry. Everybody wants to finish something before night or before snow, you know, but need to do the pay attention to that sampling, need to spend the time needed, need to take the samples, of course. If not, then you can analyze, you know, gravel in your backyard, you know, and it's the same thing, you know. So we need to pay much more attention to that, you know. The the, the cost of the analysis could be reduced if uh, they do, for example, pH, um, PK, for example, frequently, and then some of the other things Over the longer time. Great, great point.
0: Are there any new technologies out there that may replace soil testing in the future?
1: You know, this is always the interesting thing when you start looking at it because there's always new technologies coming out. And, um, you know, will they replace it? I don't know. I mean, these scanners and everything else that can do things on the go, are they any better? I mean, recently we were working with the um, soil optics, I had one of their demo units out and I don't actually have the data back now um, just to kind of look at comparison I was using it uh, in some of my the my current studies where we have multiple rates and that's you know kind of my when I start talking about technology I think there's still some core principles we need to follow And it goes back to that correlation calibration step just to make sure we have some certainty that these things are relating to something that we can effectively control and actually make some difference in the end for the grower for you know, making them at least some profit. So you know that's kind of the main thing with it. You see these things come and go, but you know, tried and true when you look at soil testing. I look at my numbers. You know, I said I, I talked about this before with phosphorus. You look at the numbers for probability of response. You look at what we're at now versus what we were maybe 20 years ago. The stuff is consistent. And I can, if I've got something that's consistently that helps me at least forward predict, which a lot of times we can with P and with at least phosphorus. I mean, I'm not going to get into the too much with potassium. I mean, we know there's issues with that. I mean, and we know, you know Antonio working on that moist test. I mean, we know there's some benefits of some of that, although that's not really new technology. I mean, that's been around and it was just kind of forgotten about for a while. That, I mean, there's some other options out there, but it's really hard to beat just that tried and true, taking a sample from a field, sending it to the lab and getting that data back just because of the predictability of it, um, you know, particularly with phosphorus, I've got a lot of confidence in that data what tells us if we're gonna get a given yield response within a given um, soil test from a from a field. So, you know, looking at it, um, you know, there might be some things to help growers in terms of the mapping side. I think that's where the soil optics is because still that has to be calibrated based on soil tests that, um, you know, there might be some things there to look at catching some of that variability within fields, but um, I don't know if we're never necessarily gonna be ever manage all that variability. So it's, it's you know, one of those things that, um, you know, time will tell. I mean, if we, need, if we don't have that Starship Enterprise sensor that tells us what we need for it, what a, for a given um, acre, you know, precisely without actually having to go out there and do the work, I mean, we still have to do the work to get the samples.
3: Yeah, I agree with Dan. Um, and it's nice that you mentioned the Enterprise, because I am a tricky, you know, and, uh, and I tell the guys, you know, yeah, we can send a, a sensor to Mars or to Pluto, you know, or whatever and point to a rock and know exactly the total elemental composition, but uh, trying to figure out with a sensor what is available in the soil, that's a very complex, you know, and up to date is not possible. So some of those things are sensing, you know, on the go, things like that are useful mainly in my view to use as other layers. For the zoning of the field, you know, but you need to do, go there and using just the soil testing analysis to see really how it does, and sometimes uh, they correlate well, but you see it's like a correlation of a correlation, you know, because. Uh, in, in some field, you know, it may work No, if you if you correlate that with the soil test, then we may get a nice factor, but you go, you know, to a field 10 miles away and doesn't work like that. So uh, this is very attractive, but uh, we are not there. We cannot have a sensing of what portion of the phosphorus in the in the organic matter, in the clays, in the solution, in in the carbonates, how much of that is really available. You know, for now this is not possible. So, so in so in my view, um, uh, yes, welcome the new technologies, but don't trust correlations, you know, too much because they will not apply from, for different regions or different fields. And uh, I have experience with that, with electrical conductivity, for example, and potassium and even organic matter. See, you go to some states that uh, you can use uh, sensing for organic matter, for example, it's pretty good. You come to Iowa. Actually, we work with a company here in Iowa, and Iowa doesn't work because the, the, the color, you know, what you're sensing is not, yeah, it's, it's organic matter, but it's also manganese, you know, it's all kind of things that give color. So you may have, you know, a variability of 2 to 8% organic matter in Iowa, and the sensing, uh, yeah, roughly tells you, yeah, this is low, this is high, but it's not even close to be precise. So I, I think that we need to be careful also. This is another issue that some people are looking at using sensing, uh, infrared and you know, all kinds of things in the lab where you get the, the, the soil analysis, the soil sample, you grind it, and then you measure with, with some sensors. And it's the same thing. Uh, it does work for some things, for others fall apart when you have different soil types with constructing different properties. So when you want to use those things uh, that are cheaper, so you could do many more analysis or in the field you could have many more points, but then you need to have correlations with the real thing, uh, and then you have a correlation of a correlation. You know that we don't. I'm not sure how that applies to different soils. You know, different fields. So it's not simple. So my, I am an old geezer, you know, and, but I, I've worked with some new technologies. But I think that this will need more time, you know, in order to really be able to pinpoint. We cannot even define by conventional analysis what is where the fossil is coming from, from different forms. We cannot do that. So then why would a sensor magically tell us about that? So we need to be very careful.
4: I'm always excited to see new things that we are trying, and I think that's always potential there. Um, Hopefully we'll get there, but I completely agree with Dan and Antonio. Uh, some of these, especially on the sensor side, I think still need work, um, because ultimately, like Antonio said, this needs to be related to yield response, and I think that's what that's maybe the missing part in many cases. And when it comes to new technology, something that I just want to touch a little bit, seems like we often also talk about new soil test methods, and we're saying, are these new technology, new new methods, better soil tests, uh, and and that's all welcome. But again, at the end of the day, is this new method related to Yield response is a correlated, calibrated for the region. And I think that's often we are, we're also missing. Uh, I think we oftentimes we tend to go, back, go immediately to commercial um, applications without doing the research and without being able to provide uh, recommendations. I see this all the time. Go talk to farmers, come up with a report of uh, some type of sensor or a new soil test method and ask me for recommendations. And the reality is that we have no idea because we haven't done any of that yet. Uh, again, we always have to go back to the field. Um, and again, goes back to the initial discussion today, like uh, Dan mentioned. So we have to rely on that field correlation calibration for any of these new technology.
1: Well, I think one of the key things there is that yield response isn't the absolute yield in your field. And that's one of the things that you know, some people think you can just take a yield map and relate it back to the soil tests, get an idea. But you got to remember that, you know, there's a lot of things that impact yield. Soil tests are one of them. I mean, moisture is another one. So it's a kind of a chicken or the egg type thing when you start looking at that is does something driving what's driving what there. So I think that's, you know, kind of key door of our, you know, what you said, I think, is looking at that. Um, it's why we, you know, still spend a lot of time doing correlation calibration work, even though I think a lot of people think it's not exciting. It's, it's just needed. We need that data that says that. This is the expected yield response based on some certain factor, whether it's a sensor value or where it's a soil test value. That's really the, the important key to get a lot of these things to work.
0: All right. Well, that about does it for this episode of the Nutrient Management Podcast. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening.